Today I'll be speaking with Megan Phelps Roper, who is the granddaughter of the infamous Fred Phelps, who is the pastor of the infamous Westboro Baptist Church. You've seen the signs they hold while picketing the funerals of dead soldiers, signs that read, God hates fags, or thank God for dead soldiers, or thank God for AIDS. Megan grew up in this church, as did the rest of her family. Most of her family remains in it. She has since left and is in a unique position to bear witness to the power of religious belief, both in her own life and in the lives of everyone she grew up with. I found it a fascinating conversation. I found her a highly intelligent and seemingly very reliable witness to this sort of life experience, and I hope you find our conversation as enjoyable as I did. One thing I should point out is that it will seem highly anachronistic that we don't talk about the recent Supreme Court ruling that made it legal for gays and lesbians to marry throughout the United States. We actually spoke before that ruling came down. Also, I feel the need to apologize for the quality of the audio. The more I get into podcasting, the more I am horrified by the quality of the audio I've put out previously. But I assure you, eventually things will be stable on my end. Unfortunately, this was not such an occasion. I would fire my audio engineer, but then I would have to fire myself. And now I give you Megan Phelps Roper. Hey, Megan, how you doing? I'm really good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Well, thank you for doing this. It's great to hear your voice. And you and I were put in touch by uh, Graham Wood, the Atlantic writer. And uh, how, how did you uh, cross paths with him? And did he interview you for something previously? Or Yeah, so I, I was on Twitter and his, uh, his cover story, What ISIS Really Wants, um, was in my feed a lot. And I read it. And as I was reading it, I you know was hearing so many themes that were so similar to my own upbringing. I mean, obviously, my family, uh, Westboro Baptist Church, is not ISIS, um, but there's so many aspects of the way they believe and um, and things that just struck me as I was going through it. And um, when I got to the end of the article, I was just totally blown away. And I scrolled back to the top and I saw his name and I immediately recognized it. And uh, about eight years ago, um, I was talking to him for, I think it was, we were talking about soldiers' funerals. It was when, um, not that long after the soldiers' funerals protest uh, had started um, at the church. And we exchanged emails back then. And um, so I, you know, found him on Twitter and I was like, hey, I don't know if you remember me, but I just read your article and it was amazing. Um, and then we just started talking. Yeah. What Graham thought would be interesting in putting the two of us together is to talk about the the power of religious belief and the role that it plays in inspiring people's behavior and you obviously have a, a unique perspective on that having having the the background that you have but let, let's back up and talk about uh your background itself and and what the the westboro baptist church is many people will have seen the visuals online of of you and the rest of the um of your family, I guess, holding signs that say God hates fags or I think thank God for dead soldiers is one of them. So to tell me about uh, Westboro and let's get into what you uh, what you actually believed uh, growing up. Right. OK, so um, the protesting started when I was five um, and the church is uh, located about half a mile from a a public park. Um, in Topeka, Kansas, 
And it was this park was known as a place where gays could go and meet and have anonymous sex. And it was something that was well known in the community. And it was even listed in this nationally circulated address book um, of such places, you know, listings across the country. Um, and, you know, one day, you know, a couple of years before the picketing started, um, my grandfather was riding through the park. Uh, with my older brother, who was at the time about four or five, maybe. Um, they were riding their bikes, and, you know, my grandfather would ride ahead a little way and then circle back. Um, and one of the times when he was circling back, he saw two men, you know, trying to lure my brother into the bushes and, uh, you know, just immediately wanted to do something about it. So he started writing letters to the city fathers and, um, and, you know, and going to city council meetings, trying to get, you know, the park cleaned up. Um, I mean, this was, I mean, it was really something that was well known. There were, you know, um, journalists and, and cops, they were doing sting operations. And so it mm. was an undeniable fact. So this, this was, uh, this was in what year? 88, 89. And this was your, your father or your grandfather who had this experience? My grandfather. Okay. Uh, yes. My grandfather is Fred Phelps. Sorry. Right. And he's the one who founded I mean, who was the first pastor of the Westboro Baptist Church. Was he a pastor already or he just decided to become one at this point? So he he was ordained when he was, I think, 16 or 17 um, uh, in Utah. And he was kind of a traveling preacher. Um, and then he ended up in Topeka and, you know, he was preaching at a church called the Eastside Baptist Church. And um, they were about to start another church on the other side of town. And uh, they asked him to stay and, and be the pastor. So so that's how he ended right. up in Topeka at this church. So he had this experience of which would you know, spark homophobia in, in many uh, predisposed to it. And so he decided to start this, this church. What, um, what, was he already someone? He had to have already been someone who was quite fundamentalist in his belief anyway, right? Or is this, was this a formative moment for him? So I'm sorry, I should back up a little ways. Um, so the church actually started in 1955. So he had been a preacher for some time before this incident. I'm sorry, I think oh, okay. I think I misunderstood <laughs> what you were saying. Sure. Um, so yeah, so he and his, his views over the years had gotten, you know, further and further away from the mainstream. Um, and so when this happened and, you know, he spent, I think it was about a year, maybe more than a year, um, trying to get the city to do something about it. Um, and when he kept, he eventually got thrown out of a city council meeting um, for saying that the, um, that the city council members were sitting around like last year's Christmas trees. And uh, so they threw him out and he said, okay, well, I'm going to do something about this myself. So that's when the picketing actually started. And it was just relatively innocuous signs like, you know, watch your kids, gays troll this park, you know, gays are in the restrooms and, you know, things like that. Um, and the the response, you know, from the community, other churches uh, started coming out to counter protests saying things like God's love speaks loudest. There was a huge contingent of, of protesters uh, from, or counter protesters from, you know, KU, which is about half an hour away from the church. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, and it started, you know, he, there was really wasn't much about God initially, but then when, you know, these, when these churches started to counter protest, they were like, well, you know, the Bible does say things about gays and it's not good. And 
we are a church and we have to we have to address this issue. Um, so that's that's how it initially got started. And then over the years, it just got more and more extreme. So first, you know, gays were the target. And then it was churches for supporting gays and otherwise, you know, not following what the what my grandfather and the church members believed. Um, they weren't following what the Bible said, not just about gays, but about, you know, premarital sex and divorce and remarriage and adultery. And, you know, so um, and then pretty quickly, um, the funeral protesting started. Um, I think it was 93. So this this was all in um, 91 is actually when the protesting started. So I think 93, they were protesting um, uh, funerals of uh, gay people who had died of AIDS. Mm. Um, and it, it was uh, partly an attention-getting mechanism, but it was never, it was never just to get attention. Uh, I remember, and this is something that a lot of people, you know, have charged the church with. Yes, they're they're not really Christian. They don't really they don't really follow the Bible. Here, look, they ignore this verse and this verse. And but uh, there was, I remember listening to my grandfather uh, in an interview a few years ago, and the reporter said, "Some people say that you're just doing these things to get attention," and he kind of looked at her like she was crazy or stupid, and, and said. Well, of course I'm doing it to get attention. How can I preach to these people if I don't have their attention? Mm. Um, so there was always a reason and a purpose for the protests themselves. Um, but to get attention for them and to get attention for the message um, was always the primary goal. The charge that things are done just to get attention usually carries with it the, the insinuation that... People don't really believe what they say they believe, that, that these these expressions of, of hatred are just uh, meant to be inflammatory, but aren't necessarily uh, an honest statement of uh, one's outlook. Was there any distance between what you and the rest of the family believed and what you were saying publicly, or is this, were you just simply giving voice to, to your actual worldview? No, we were just giving voice to our actual worldview. I mean, my family... Uh, didn't come to the table with hatred for LGBT people uh, and then and then look to the Bible to justify that hatred, which is a common charge. Um, they read, if a man also lie with mankind as he lieth with a woman, both of them have committed abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. And walked away from that with, and you know, not just that verse, but lots of other ones. They walked away from that with, God hates fags and right. supporting the death penalty for gays. And to categorically deny a connection between those words from Leviticus and our beliefs, to say that we read into the text what we wanted to see, is, is I think, to be blind to the nearly all-encompassing power of that sort of blinding faith. And it's, it's, it, that's why it was such almost a relief um, to read in Graham Wood's article um, to say that ISIS is Islamic very Islamic, you know, it's, it's not a matter of ISIS being representative of, you know, Muslims as a whole. It's a matter of them drawing inspiration from the text. Yeah. Yeah. And the church and your grandfather sometimes mentioned in this connection. So, so what I find uh, as someone who criticizes the link between religious belief, in this case, Muslim jihadist ideas and a phenomenon like ISIS I find that 
that people who don't like that connection very much will say, well, we have our extremists, we have the Westboro Baptist Church. Now, it's always a frustrating thing to hear as though what your family has done is in any way analogous to what is happening throughout uh, much of the Muslim world, and in particular uh, in Syria and Iraq right now. But you are, your family's church is often held out as the most extreme variant of Christianity in, in the West and in particular in the U.S. I'm wondering if that's true. I actually don't. I'd like to just f- find out precisely what you believed on other topics. But it, it's, it's clear that, that, that this attention-getting mechanism of standing out there with signs is, uh, has convinced many people that you're extreme. But are, are you part of the Reconstructionist or Dominionist movement that wants all of the old laws in, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy practiced? I mean, do you, do you think that homosexuals should be killed or adulterers should be killed? Because there are Christians in the U.S. who claim to believe that. And, and is your grandfather among them? Uh, yes. Um, okay. not they're, they're not trying to reinstitute all of the Levitical Code, the Mosaic Code. Um, they think that they um, there's two categories, according to the church. Um, there's the ceremonial law, which is things like the dietary code, and uh, and then there's the the moral law, which is things like uh, you know laws against murder and against homosexuality and against adultery. Um, so if they're they're only trying to uphold the moral the moral law, um, and but that this was actually one of the one of the things that um, I've you know that eventually helped me to see outside of our paradigm. Because my grandfather would say things like um, that the only way for the United States to show that they have truly repented of the sin of homosexuality is uh, for them to institute the death penalty for homosexuality, make it a capital crime. Mm. And we had a we had a sign that said death penalty for fags. Yeah. So the comparison to ISIS is somewhat more reasonable than I first thought. It's not that obviously you've been running around killing people. Or your your church has it's, but you're advocating a, a true commitment to sort of Taliban style theocracy uh, or ISIS style theocracy. So what what are what are other killing offenses? What would you what else would you pull out of or your, what what else would your grandfather pull out of Leviticus as as actionable? I might say adultery, but we, we never. This was one of, again. This was one of the things that that um, that. I, let me uh, let me back up one second. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had um, okay. For one, they're not actually trying to institute a theocracy. They don't believe that that the United States. They they believe that the world is going to end, and that right. only a tiny remnant of of um, humanity, which is to say the church itself, and but only the the true uh, the elect of God. Um, so. They're not trying to actually change the laws. They're not actually trying to make anything happen with the government. They don't believe it's possible, and so it's not something that they pursue. Right. Um, uh, but, um, but that that question about death penalty for vags. This was that was the very first point, um, the, the very first real question that I had about our theology. And when I say question, I mean doubt. The first thing mm-hmm. I realized that we were wrong about. Um, and it came from a conversation with a Jewish guy on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really, um, 
I mean, I'm advocating for the death penalty for gays, and he, you know, and I'm quoting these verses from Leviticus, and you know, and he says, um, "Well, what about this member of your church who had a child out of wedlock?" And and I said, "You know, what about her? She repented, so she doesn't deserve that punishment." Um, and he said, "says Yeah, but that that's also a sin worthy of death." And you know, if um, and also, didn't Jesus say, let he who is without sin cast the first stone? Um, and so this is the first time, you know, stepping back from that and re- realizing, you know, if she had been killed, wh- you know, just as, if you kill someone, as soon as they sin, mm. you completely cut off the opportunity to repent and be forgiven, which is a major foundation of Christian theology. Like, this is this is what we were preaching, repent or perish. You have you have to repent and follow God's laws and live as we live, and that's the only way to heaven. And then for him to say that, you know, quoting Jesus, let he who is without sin cast the first stone, I I realized, because we would always answer that, that quote, because people would throw that in our face all the time. We would answer that by saying, yeah, but we're not, we're not casting stones. We're preaching words. All we have are words. We put words on signs and we stand on public sidewalks. We're not hurting anybody. Uh, but we were advocating for the government to kill people. And what was Jesus talking about that, you know, about there, if not, um, if not the death penalty? So, you know, I take that to, you know, my mom and a few other people in the church and was just immediately shut down. It's mm-hmm. like, no, Leviticus calls for the death penalty. If that penalty was good enough for God, then it's good enough for us. Romans 1 says that gays are worthy of death and so are their enablers. No. So what did your mom uh, say about the analogy to the other member of your family who had had a child out of wedlock? It just that it, that I was getting wrapped around an axle. Like, oh, this is just it's just not this an important piece of theology or or that that the point is they're not going to do it. That's what she said. And and I remember thinking like, well, yeah, but if we're going to use this as a litmus test, the fact that, you know, instituting death penalty since Jesus said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone, shouldn't the litmus test be the other direction? Shouldn't right. the fact that we don't do that be, you know, showing that we're obedient to God and and such? Yeah. So, well, one thing that I think we should flag here is that it, it's often believed on the the atheist, secularist, rationalist side of the, the conversation that you just can't reason people out of their heartfelt religious convictions because it, well, you, there's this this meme that has gone around uh, often attributed to to someone like Mark Twain I don't know how actually I don't know who actually said it but the idea is that if you can't reason somebody out of something they didn't reason themselves into and uh, but it's clearly not true and and anyone who's actually been in dialogue with uh, with many people like yourself uh, over the years knows it's not true is your effort to make your beliefs self-consistent and this person on Twitter pointing out a, contra- a logical contradiction in your beliefs was uh, an entering wedge for you, which ultimately separated you from from these ideas that had been drummed into you. So I, I want to get into what you what you now believe in a minute, but I, w- I want to linger for a moment on on just what the church doctrine is in a church like Westboro. How do you? resist the move that many, many Christian denominations make, which is to disavow more or less everything in the Old Testament because it no longer applies. You don't have to fulfill the law that you, Jesus gave a doctrine of grace and 
and none of that old barbarism applies. What, why, why wasn't that move open to you and your family? Because we believed that the, I mean, there are a lot of verses in the New Testament, a lot of passages and, and writers in the New Testament who reference the Old Testament um, as, you know, a basis and foundation for their doctrines um, and sort of reinforcing them. And, you know, Jesus himself said um, that not one heaven and earth will pass away, but not one jot or tittle of my word will pass away until all is fulfilled. Yeah. So, yeah, there is that. Yeah. We definitely didn't disavow um, the Old Testament. And the only reason that distinction I was explaining a minute ago about the difference, the distinction between the ceremonial law and the moral law, the reason they don't you know, keep kosher or something, is because of a New Testament passage that specifically sort of revises. Um, it's in um, Acts 10 and 11. It talks about uh, you know Peter is having a vision and you know, God sends this sheet down with all these animals that are, were unclean under the Mosaic Code. And God says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, not so, Lord, for no unclean thing has passed my lips. And it, this happens three times. And God finally says, don't you call unclean what I've cleansed. So it's like, okay, this is now, now this, um, it's it's not no longer required to to keep kosher or to follow these and, and right. there are several other passages in the New Testament that, that specify which of the laws you have to you have to follow. But so yeah. we definitely took yeah. a lot of our a lot of our doctrine and a lot of our um, a lot of our beliefs from the Old Testament. It doesn't help that Paul also endorses the the uh, at least the morality of killing homosexuals. Uh, I think it's in Ephesians. Uh, although I think he also says that it doesn't have to be carried out. Isn't that? Isn't that how things shake down with Paul? I don't know. I'm not sure about that passage you're referring to in Ephesians, um, but I do know the. I mean, we memorized Romans. We memorized a lot of a lot of the Bible, but we memorized Romans one one summer, um, and the end of Romans one. Um, you know, it's basically starting from verse 18 towards the end. Um, you know, it's it's talking about gay people, um, and then uh, at the end it says that. Um, don't you know that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only those which do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them? That, that really is always the issue, that the a more literalist hewing to the text has a kind of self-consistency and power, even when, even when the text is, as the Bible is, rather amazingly inconsistent. It, the effort to connect the dots, the effort to make it as consistent as possible— keeps you as wedded as possible to a first century or a thousand year BC uh, moral code, depending on on what you're emphasizing. Uh, so it's yeah, it really is always the issue I'm walking into here, where, where the the theology is really on the side of the literalist when it when it comes down to an argument about what the books actually say, because uh, any effort to Make them seem merely metaphorical or uh, more elastic than than any plain reading of the text would suggest. That effort itself is clearly being driven not from some imperative that that, that the reader is finding in the in the text, but an imperative that's coming from outside the text, from the world of that's filled with libertines who want other things out of life. They, they, they you have a different set of priorities that have come from from a modern secular scientific cosmopolitan commitment and then you go back to the text trying to make sense of 
of its uh, sacredness, and you and the the, the deck is is stacked against you if you're a moderate or a liberal. Right. I mean, I think the difference, in the, and, and Graham talks about this a little bit, I think, um, and there, there's a difference. There's, there's different kinds of belief. There's belief like my family and I, that I believe um, at least, you know, some percentage of ISIS is um, in similar groups. Um, and those are people who, who read the text and you know like you said the plain meaning of the text so and whatever whatever they take away from that plain reading like that is what it says and there is no interpretation and that 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 um, idea about there not being any interpretation that's another thing that um, was so similar I don't know if you read the um, in the New Yorker there was a, a story recently called journey to jihad and again with this you know all these similarities um, and that that one was one of the first ones it says mm-hmm. Um, the leader of one of these, you know, groups. It was called Sharia for Belgium. Um, asked this prospective recruit if he was prepared to learn the Quran without any distortion or editing or interpretation. It's like, okay, you just read the text and it it means what it means, and and you have to go along with it, no matter what your moral impulses would say otherwise. Um, and and then there are people who who read it and who are there's a willingness when they read it to, to you know, include their own thoughts of, you know, ex, you know, like you said, things outside the text, their own beliefs and understanding of the world, you know, that obviously influences the way that they read it um, or that they're trying to, you know, read it in light of beliefs that they already have. And yeah. my family saw that as, as explicitly evil. Like you are substituting your judgment for God's judgment when clearly the book says this, and yeah, we yeah. would we would quote the Bible. We met, like I said, we we would sit around. We read the Bible every single day. We talked about world events and the church's interpretation, um, uh, in the light of the church's interpretation of the Bible, and we would memorize big parts of it. And we would be standing out on the picket line, you know, talking with people. And just quoting verse after verse and so many people, and I'm not saying everyone is like this, but so many of the people we were talking to mm. had no idea that the Bible said these things. Right. I mean, and so it's, it's, it's a very, um, and again, this is one of those things, I mean, I was reading um, Reza Aslan um, said something like, if I were to... Um, he was talking about you and Bill Maher, and he says, like, they believe that people derive their values from their religion. That, as every scholar of religion in the world will tell you, is false. People don't derive their values from their religion. They bring their values to their religion. And I can just say flat out, that's exactly the reverse of, of what happened to my family. My family, if with, without these, you know, these texts, they would be doing in amazing, incredible things that w- would change the world for the better. I mean, my family is full of lawyers there and, you know, professionals and they work hard and they're incredibly intelligent. They have advanced degrees and, and incredibly, it can be incredibly kind and generous. And that's one of the things, you know, when you're there, when you're part of it, that shows you the goodness of like, see, so much of this stuff comes directly from the scriptures, and it's mm. so good and so wonderful, and it's such a an amazing thing to be a part of. Um, and yet, because they have to set aside, again, their own moral impulses, 
uh, and accept this, you know, this reading of the text as they understand it because they believe it's the word of God. They are left with, you know, picketing funerals and, you know, causing all sorts of causing all sorts of trouble and, and heartache for people. Yeah. Uh, well, none of that is a surprise to me, of course. And um, I, I think the same is true even amid um, all the, the the grotesque violence you see in ISIS. Uh, you know, you, you, you see these guys. These are, these are not depressed, suicidal psychopaths who just want to destroy their lives and go out with a bang. These are people who are deriving incredible experiences of meaning and highly uh, energized, uh, passionate experiences of, of bonding with, with their, their brothers in arms, and they, they, they just have no doubt that what they're doing is morally right and that, that the creator of the universe is going to reward them for doing it. And so it's not to, to hear that, you, that your family uh, was experiencing and, and probably still is experiencing a, a rich life in the context of these beliefs doesn't surprise me at all. What is it about? Explain the the picketing of funerals, uh, in particular the, the funerals of soldiers. What what is that about, and and what does the um, the sign "Thank God for Dead Soldiers" mean? Soldiers' funerals. The picketing started in uh, June of two thousand five. Um, so it was a couple years into the war, uh, and they were seeing that that my grandfather called the the funerals that we would see on television. These are they're not funerals. They're patriotic pep rallies and, you know, encouraging people in their sins when clearly God has not blessed this family. God has cursed them. Um, there's all sorts of verses in the Old Testament, um, you know, in the book of Judges. It says, they chose new gods, then was war in their gates. Um, and then in the books of the kings, it says, for there fell down many slain because the war was of God. Um, and then in the book of Hosea, it says, they have deeply corrupted themselves. Therefore, I will remember their iniquity and I will visit their sins. Though they bring up their children, yet will I bereave them that there shall not be a man left. So all these things that connect, you know, idolatry um, and sin with punishment and specifically killing soldiers in battle. And so we thought that it was our duty to go to these funerals and, and to show people, to tell, to explain this connection between the sin and the punishment. And for us, it was a direct connection, um, an, an undeniable connection. And so every, every, that's what we were doing. So it wasn't a protest against a any one of our wars. It was not that you were a protest in U.S. foreign policy. It's just you were, you were drawing the connection between God's omnipotence and this outcome. And obviously, if God had wanted to protect these soldiers, he would have. Right. And we are saying not only was he not just not protecting them, he was deliberately killing them because of the sins of America and of the specific families. We were, Before we would go to a funeral, um, we would have, uh, we would read, whoever was on that trip um, would would read all the articles we could find in the newspapers about the soldier, the you know, the obituary and whatever else other stories that were written about them um, and identify the sins of this specific soldier. So most of them were not gay, of course, but they were, you know, talking about the soldier's pregnant girlfriend or when they were celebrating Christmas or Halloween or otherwise, mm. um, showing that they were not uh, obedient 
to the scriptures as we understood them. And, and But now wh- why not do this for just ordinary deaths? You know, there's a, a bus accident and a bunch of people die. Oh, they do. Oh, they do. So so it, the Charleston shootings is is, you know, another, one of the things recently that they've been um, talking about doing. Um, about about protesting. I'm not sure if they actually are going to because we would always, uh, you know, proclaim that we would be picketing them, um, but we didn't actually always go. Um, right. And that was only because of lack of opportunity. Well, if, if your grandfather wants attention, I would uh, I would say he's going to get it doing that. That's pretty remarkable. So, yeah, so so, so the, the picketing of the soldiers' funerals, just to be clear, the, the sin... Of, of the country you were protesting in that case is not doesn't have anything to do with U.S. foreign policy or our uh, misadventures in the Middle East. You're just pointing out the fact that a country that tolerates sinfulness like homosexuality can can expect to pay this price when its soldiers come back in body bags. Precisely. Exactly. Did, I'm sorry, did, I interrupted you. Did you have more on, on that? Well, you just asked about that specific sign, the uh, thank God for dead soldiers sign. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then we had several others like thank God for AIDS um, and things like that. So um, you're supposed to thank God, we would say, for all of his judgments because they're all righteous. So even when you don't like them or when they're painful or hurt, or hurtful to you, you have to acknowledge that God is sovereign and that everything he does is good and right. And that, um, so this, and you should take this, you know, dead soldier, this dead child, um, as a warning. So you're not dead yet. Like God didn't kill you. You still have an opportunity to repent. So, and not only an opportunity, but an obligation to repent. Mm. So that's why, thank God for dead soldiers. So now, how old were you when you were actively a part of this in in the sense that you're picketing funerals and you're, you're expressing your beliefs in public? This is throughout your teenage years and into your early 20s or right so i left i left about two and a half years ago when i was almost 27 mm. um and uh, the, like i said the picketing started when i was five and we picketed every single day in topeka and of course every like i said also every day we were reading the bible and and memorizing and talking about it and um so all you know all through school this is after school, you're picketing. How were you homeschooled, or you were, you were going to a public school, or public school? Yeah. Um, and so, of course, all of our classmates knew exactly who we were and what we believed. And and in fact, in high school, we would be in class, you know, sitting in class with our, you know, the people, you know, our classmates. And and lunchtime would come, and we'd you know cross the parking lot, cross the street, and pick up a sign and picket our high school during lunch. Oh man. So now, how? So what was that experience like? Being a child, more or less, being obliged to express those beliefs in a in a social context of other children in a school who who obviously didn't share those beliefs to any significant degree. What just socially? What was that like for you? Um, it was. I think we were kind of a conundrum for a lot of people um, because our parents taught us to be kind and friendly and helpful and polite. Uh, which we were, um, because uh, and then and then of course we would be doing all these things that that people think are disgusting and hurtful and and you know not true and you know saying saying all these things. So I think we were a conundrum for people because they would expect people with our sorts of beliefs to be horrible people. And for us, it was so important that people only hate us for our beliefs. Mm. It was so important that our behavior and our like that we we were above reproach. 
Um, so, and this carried over into like even our, our schooling. Education was super important. And, you know, if we weren't getting a 4.0 GPA, there better be a good reason why. So, of course, a lot of us did. So did you form close friendships with people who were outside your church? And what was, if so, what was that like? Um, not very close because we were always really suspicious of people outside the church. Um, they even, and, and of course, this is something that was drummed into us all our lives. They don't, these people hate each other, we would say. And they certainly hate us. They don't care about you. They don't care about each other. All, all they want to do is live how they want to live and encourage one another in their sins. And you can't trust them. So I definitely wouldn't, you know, of course, we'd talk about, I don't know, music or books or homework. So this is from from age five on. You're not forming friendships with other five-year-olds. And you, you, you had an in-group, out-group view of yourself from the, your earliest memories. Is that the case? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and the way that you just put that, that I mean, the identity aspect of it, um, and especially for those of us who grew up there, it's, it's so strong, us versus them. It's, there's, and there is, no, there is no middle ground. That was something, again, that was also drummed into us. It's, there is, there's no, that you're either a Jacob or an Esau. I don't know if you know the Bible that much, but the, they were twins in the scriptures. And God loved Jacob and hated Esau. It says before they were even born, God loved Jacob and hated Esau. And so you're either Jacob or an Esau. And if you are a Jacob, you want nothing to do with the world. You know, Jesus, um, you know, J the book of James talks about um, friendship with the world is enmity with God. And, um, how you're not supposed to love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. And so it was very important to have this us, them. And of course, when you're standing on a picket line every day and people are going by, driving by, screaming at you and honking and throwing things and and we're, we're traveling this whole time too. This was not just happening in Topeka. We were, tr we were traveling across the country regularly and that definitely solidifies this, this identity. Um, and it's really crazy. There was this... Um, article a few months ago uh, in the New York Times called The Brain's Empathy Gap. Mm. And it was talking about how the suppression of empathy is most strongly correlated with group identity. So it's not people people who are, you know, just inherently more empathetic, like that they, uh, that they display the most empathy. But when you're in these groups, that's the most important thing. And, and the stronger your group identity, the more you're able to suppress empathy for the outgroup. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's definitely the case, I think, for us. Yeah, and as you point out, it, it is a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you have a, a sufficiently insular set of beliefs that are divisive and attracting to you the consternation of the outgroup, well, then, of course, th those collisions with the outgroup will seem to justify everything you have been believing about them. I mean, you see that in every cult, essentially. And so the, do you now think about your upbringing as being one in which you were brought up in a cult and have now escaped the cult? Does that seem fair? I generally avoid the word cult just because it, I mean, it just seems unnecessarily, um, I don't know, not provocative exactly. But um, I think that, I, I do think now um, that there's a lot of, I mean, the, the indoctrination, the fact that 
um, in our church, I mean, it's it's all or nothing. There right. can be no, um, you know, difference of opinion or, you know, even no matter how slight in matters of conscience. And the fact that, I mean, the, and the threat, uh, this was, you know, uh, I read in that journey to jihad, it says something about the threat of excommunication uh, kept most members obedient. Um, when you're in a group like that, where your whole life is tied up in it, so yes, we went to public school. Yes, they have jobs outside the church. I mean, a lot of them have jobs outside the church. But there was always this this otherness about us and and the way we saw ourselves in the world. Um, for me, it was you know it's my family, my church, my home, my job. My entire life is wrapped up in that. And so for me to you know go to my mom or go to you know go to my family members when I had that 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 first question and doubt. Um, and to be shut down like that, the, the, what I did for a while was just suppress it. It's like, okay, I, I either have to lose everything yeah. or go along with this thing that I don't believe. So, I mean, I, I stopped holding the sign. That was the, that was the way I sort of reconciled it. But then I just, you know, you just go on that, that pressure, they, they see that as, um, perfectly scriptural that's you know we're just following what the bible says there can't we can't have you know there's a lot of verses in the new testament that talk about how the church has to be of one mind of one accord in the same in one place of the same judgment so therefore there we have to agree on everything and so to have but to have that kind of pressure it makes it so it's definitely cult-like to answer your question, yeah. sorry. Is the, is the church winning new converts or is it just a stable group of people? It was mostly stable. There was, um, in 2001, there was a, a family uh, of four who joined the church. It was a, a, there was a documentary filmmaker from, who was living in Florida, uh, who, you know, as he's making the documentary, at first to try to prove that we were wrong and that the Bible didn't really say these things, you know, he was like, wait, it does say this stuff. And eventually he converted oh, and moved his family, yeah. him and his wife and their two kids. Did they make the documentary? Was that was that the actual subject of the documentary? It, it was, yeah. His, his convert his his conversion is is detailed in the documentary. No, I'm sorry, his conversion isn't. He was it, it turned into it was originally called Fred the Movie, and now it's called Hate Muggers. It's more of this how how the church came to be and what they were doing and why. But now this person is is in the church? Yes, he's actually one of the elders now, one of the pastors. Oh, that that is hilarious. And then there was really no no new converts until really until um 2011 and to, and during 2011 there was uh, you know, I don't know, 10 or 12 people who joined the church including some like younger people like my age and they're in their 20s and like I was like, oh my God, <laughs> the world is going to end <laughs> because it was this crazy. It, it, we'd never experienced something like that before. Um, um, many of them eventually left again, and then there since my sister and I left two and a half years ago, there's been more a few more people who have joined. So how big is it now? How many how many people are in it? Between seventy and eighty or so. So yeah, I, I like to find out a little bit more about what you believed growing up. Clearly, you were quite concerned about winding up in hell. You must have thought all of the other people who you went to school with and who you were meeting and liking to whatever degree were going to go to hell unless they came completely over to your side of things theologically, right? What What's the experience of a child 
with that worldview? Are you because you, you, you must be forming some kind of attachments with other children, but you also believe that they and their parents and their brothers and sisters are going to burn in hell for eternity. What is there? Does that did that bother you, or is that is it still is it enough of an abstraction that you don't really think about it? Um, no. So it was um, it was strange because you'd meet people and you'd like them and sometimes they'd be really kind to you and friendly and you could have, you know, fun playing on the playground or, or, you know, talking about, like I was saying, books and music and, and stuff. But, um, and then it would, it was, there was a common question that would come up when, as you develop these friendships, um, eventually, I mean, a lot of times, eventually it would come to, yeah, but you think I'm going to hell. And of course, you, you're obliged to say, well, yeah, I mean, but, you know, I like you kind of. <laughs> and that's why we're picketing that we, we thought that by picketing um, that we we'd saw this as the definition of love. So when love thy neighbor first comes up in the Bible, it's in Leviticus 19 verses 17 and 18. And it, it says, um, um, thou shalt not hate thy neighbor in thine heart, but thou shalt in any wise rebuke him and not suffer a sin upon him. Um, it says, thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So to hate your neighbor in your heart is to not rebuke him when you see him sinning. So we thought we were fulfilling this commandment to love our neighbor by going out and warning people of the consequences of their sins. So as much as the word hate appears on all the signs, it's always the hatred of God. So there, there's this kind of strange... Um, uh, dichotomy, I guess, between what people believed about us and what we believed and what we actually believed and how we felt about people. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it reminds me, there was a moment uh, somewhat widely reported when members of ISIS were executing, I believe, uh, men claimed to be guilty of, of homosexuality. And there were these, as you imagine, the whole thing is horrible, but what made it especially so was that there were these uh, apparently tender moments between the the jihadists who are about to execute their their neighbors for the sin of homosexuality, where they would hug them and they were they were expressing what to any disinterested observer looks like ordinary compassion, uh, and then went on to uh, throw these people from a rooftop or topple a wall on them or stone them. I forget how they actually killed them, but it was. You had these, this this mismatch between, from a secular perspective, a, a completely insane level of bigotry and intolerance, and yet it was clearly framed in their mind as not being synonymous with interpersonal hatred. It was a kind of compassion. They are they are executing God's law, and they are hating the sin and not the sinner on some level, and that and that. It was, it was. It proved impossible for many people to interpret who don't actually have enough empathy to put themselves in the shoes of people who actually believe these things. But what what I'm just what I'm hearing from you on this topic is is, is reminding me of that. Does that seem like a good analogy? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I um I read that too, and I and I knew exactly what that feeling was like. I mean, obviously not killing somebody, and that's but it's that that apparent mismatch that you describe. Mm. Um, and I could absolutely, I mean, and it's almost mind-boggling, even for me now, to read accounts like that. And so, um, 
you just are kind of aghast at it. Um, but I, I also realize that if it's, even though I know that mindset, I know what that's like, uh, it's still baffling to me now. And, and so I think, you know, the fact that my family really believes mm. all these things that, that, that I'm first coming to understand what hell is and why I got baptized and the, the incredible amount of fear and, and motivation that comes from those beliefs and why we would do such, you know, to outsiders seems like such extreme things, but they made perfect sense at the time. Mm. Um, so I understand that if, if this is, is baffling and, and not, not baffling might not be, quite be the right word, but, um, but to me, then what must it be like for people who have never been in that position? Um, and I can totally understand why so many people want to deny a connection between, you know, Islam and and ISIS and or between Christianity and Westboro. And I, I understand it, but it's just it's not accurate. It's not um, it just misses the whole the whole point. The so yeah yeah and it just it also ignores the fact that there is no clear line between what should be so hard to believe that you can't actually believe anyone believes it and beliefs that of course are believed and are actually the engines of emotion and behavior because because one man's crazy claim is another man's rather straightforward statement of of theology and it's you know where does where does something become so strange that you you need to doubt that anyone believes it that people can believe I mean the truth is there there are scientific propositions that are as strange as anything in theology it's just we believe them because we have arrived at them by very different methods you know to the you know quantum mechanics is incredibly strange and the idea just just the knowledge of the the size uh, of the universe and its age, and you know any specific process in the world that is deeply counterintuitive, from you know, the germ theory of disease to the way you know DNA regulates re- reproduction. I mean, all of this stuff. We don't have intuitions that marry well to um, most of what goes on in the world in any detail. And the truth is that the the re- religious stories. Uh, of divine justice and the bad people getting what they they really deserve after death, these do marry to our intuitions better than many things in science. And that's why so many millions of people hold to these ideas generation after generation. So it's it's not, it, it's always seemed to me that this incredulity over others' credulity just seems like it's um, never fully thought through it's it's and especially when you also when you look at what it takes to indoctrinate a child into any system of beliefs you know i have i have two young daughters who more or less believe whatever is told to them what what what's their choice you know there's i mean one my my youngest doesn't believe much of anything because she's just beginning to speak but my 6 year old i mean now she uh, she's obviously capable of questioning claims you make about the nature of the world, and she's trying to put two and two together. But it's absolutely clear that if from the moment of her birth, I had told her that there was nothing more important than staying out of hell, and that this book is the the recipe guide for a moral life and uh, was dictated by the creator of the universe, you know, beliefs that, that I imagine are 
more or less what were handed to you, of course you're going to grow up believing these things without question until some genius on Twitter forces you to look at a contradiction within your own belief system. Right. And especially when, like for for me and my siblings and my family, um, we were also, we were taught all those things you just mentioned, but we were also taught um, how to interpret evidence, how to, how to see everything in the world and, and to um, have every objection that might ever arise and have the answer to that objection already, like mm-hmm. having repeated it over and over again. It makes it so that it's such an almost impossible, like one, once you accept the premises, it's almost, almost impossible to argue yourself out of that paradigm until, like you said, some sort of internal inconsistency. Yeah, I mean that, that's the, the really diabolical nature of this kind of belief system because it is hermetically sealed. All arguments from the outside have been pre-stigmatized. And I mean, you can just use the blanket formula of saying that all of your doubts and all of the intrusions of reason are just the temptations of Satan, right? Is that, is that something that was ever explicitly said in your church? Absolutely. If you have a doubt or a question uh, about these standards, which are so clearly laid out in Scripture, then you're you're doubting not just Scripture, but God Himself, and questioning God Himself, and trying to again substitute your judgment for God's. And how dare you? How dare you? That was always the like, what? Who the hell are you, little kid? You know, to question or I mean, I'm, I'm not just talking about little kids, but like at, when you're hearing that as you grow up, you. It's you have no confidence in your own thoughts and your own um, in your own thinking because because this is all you have to separate, set aside everything that you think and feel, everything that you see, um, and see it this way. Impose this ideology on top of everything else because it is paramount over and above everything, everything else. So, when were your first doubts kindled? Was it this? Twitter exchange, or did did something happen earlier? I mean, there are. I can after um after I first thought of leaving. So that um that conversation on Twitter was in like November of 2010. Um, I first thought of leaving July uh, of 2012. Um, after a lot of other things happened in the church. Um, but once I once I um first once I once it actually occurred to me that I might have to leave, suddenly it was like my entire worldview was just completely up in the air. I I wasn't sure about anything. I had no idea. And suddenly every doubt and question that I'd ever had, um, but had neglected to pursue, if you know what I mean. So like, yeah. I remember, uh, like being in college and, um, I was, I, I took a logic class that I loved. I loved logic. Um, and I, I'm like, driving to school one day and I'm thinking through all these, you know, some of these arguments or some, something that had happened and, and, um, the, so theological arguments and, and realizing that there was literally no evidence that could be introduced to us to change our opinions. Mm-hmm. There was no evidence that, that if somebody says that, you know, if somebody says that they, that they love us, that they care about us, well, they're just either lying or delusional and, you know, and then if they if they say they hate us, of course they hate us. So everybody hates us. But there's no way of 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 getting out of out of these you know um, preconceived notions that we already had. Um, 
And I remember being kind of bothered by that. And then I, and I, and then I arrived at school and I was like, huh. And then just went on. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like, yeah, that's that's not, that's totally normal. And, and several other things, things like hell. Um, I remember, so our concept of hell and heaven. Hell is you spend eternity there and it's, you know, the worm that eats on you never dies and the fire is never quenched and the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever and they have no rest day nor night and etc. So this is hell. Um, the hottest places in hell are reserved for ex-members of Westboro Baptist Church mm-hmm. because we <laughs> because because we knew the truth and had rejected it. Right. So the more the more knowledge you have, um, the the worse the pain is in hell. And the only thing that changes in hell is your ability to feel pain. So as your ability to feel pain is is completely you know filled up, then your that ability increases and as that ability to feel pain increases so too does the pain itself oh god really is merciful isn't he wow just just when you you were worried that you were going to run out of your ability to feel pain he gives you more of it right exactly and and then our our concept of a heaven was that we got to judge the people in hell so we each in heaven all of the saints of god and his elect would be in heaven and have a caseload where every wrong thought and deed that any every and any and every person had ever committed we were going to they were all going to be adjudicated and so this was going to be our lot in heaven and i remember listening to gramps talk about this in church one day when i was i think maybe in my early 20s and several times actually but um and real just suddenly it occurring to me i can't even watch like a torture scene in a movie or something mm. like without getting absolutely enraged and and just so disgusted and horrified and like huh well maybe when i by the time i get to heaven like i'll see this as a good thing like like there's something wrong with me for being disgusted at torture right right, right. and yeah. So th- these are things that are all occurring to me after after it occurs to me to leave you'll grow a I'm thicker actually, skin in heaven yeah right yeah. I mean, and it's just so many things suddenly, you know, once, once it wasn't, I mean, once you think about losing everything, your family and your whole life and everything, then suddenly, you know, it's, you, you have to think through everything. Is this, is this right? Is this actually the truth? Or, you know, have, have I been indoctrinated? Are we wrong about these things? So now are you having open discussions with your the rest of your family members at this point or is it all going on privately and you're just stewing trying to figure out what to do with your doubts um mostly the latter um i waited less than a day um after it first occurred to me first i thought oh my god as soon as i thought of it oh my god i have to leave immediately because just the fact that it occurred to me to leave means that i don't belong here and that i i I'm a betrayer. I felt so horribly guilty and evil and like I was already condemned. And so, but I, I was with my sister, Grace, at the time, who's um, seven years younger than me. There's uh, 11 kids in our family and I'm the third oldest. She's the seventh. Um, so, but we were really good friends and um, we had been talking about some things that had changed that were changing within the church over the past, you know, little over a year. And uh, so 
when it first occurred to me and I thought I have to leave immediately, I saw her and I, and I was like, I, I can't leave without talking to her. So I did talk to her um, the next day and it was terrifying because if she could have, you know, I didn't know for sure if mm. she wouldn't tell on me and if she told on me what would happen. Like either would have been gone, you know, immediately or else, you know, uh, put under... Um, I don't want to say heavy surveillance, but like it's the sort of thing where they take your phone away, they take your computer away. You'd have to, I don't know, be doing like manual labor and stuff. Like somebody is always going to be having their eye on you if you want to stay. Were you worried that you could be physically harmed by your family or was it not that kind of family? No. Yeah, not that kind of family. It's not It's not the physical. It's nothing, it's nothing worldly exactly. I mean, unless, except I guess your home and, you know, all of your stuff and everything. But um I mean, my parents like helped us when we actually finally did leave. Um, they helped us pack our things, and and so I mean, it wasn't it wasn't a physical thing. No, it was a, it was just the prospect of being excommunicated, or you know, or leaving ourselves. We would just lose everything. Um, so it was a it was a Grace, my sister, was the only um, person who I could talk with openly about these things. And you and you knew that because you just knew the, the, how strong everyone else's commitment was or you you made some attempt and and ran into a brick wall with others. Both, both. Um and especially so like I said it was in early July when I first thought of leaving and we left in um, mid-November <clears throat> of 2012. Um and so in during that time the more time went on the more open I was with others about my questions and doubts um, because I thought I thought we were wrong about so many things and I thought I have to try I didn't want we didn't want to leave we wanted we wanted them we wanted the church to be right we wanted them to like we felt like it had gone way off track and there were so many things that were that were wrong and we just wanted to fix it we wanted to stay um, and there was just no we realized because after hitting brick wall after brick wall after brick wall, the, there wasn't anything else we could do from the inside, and we couldn't go on doing these things that we had come to believe were were wrong. So, so how would you summarize your beliefs and worldview now? What what have you left Westboro with at this point? Well, I'm still keenly interested in theology, uh, and I spend a lot of time thinking and and writing about it. Because I mean, partly because um, one, I still follow my family on Twitter. Um, we have they blocked us on our main Twitter accounts, but I have a, a separate Twitter account where we only follow them. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so, I'm, of course, I'm seeing these these same ideas that um, that we have you know now rejected and looking for for less harmful ways of interpreting it. Partly because of another you know reference to Graham's article. At the end of the article, he was talking about uh, dissuasion and how giving people with these extreme beliefs an off-ramp so that it's not uh, that the beliefs themselves aren't as harmful to themselves or to other people. So I spent a lot of time thinking and reading the Bible, and um, but I, I definitely struggle with belief of any kind because it seems like you always come to a place... Uh, where you have to set aside logic and and reason and the impact of 
of of beliefs um, and just say, okay, well, we don't know. We don't know about this. We don't know how to interpret it, but but God is good and you just have to go along with it. Mm-hmm. And I'm just not willing to do that anymore um, because I did that for almost 27 years. And I think that was uh, not a good thing to do, not a good way of, of approaching the world. And I would echo John Ronson, who wrote that book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed. Yeah. Um, he said... Um, Certainly, I believe that human beings are more important than ideology, and I definitely believe that. So the off-ramp for you, was it mostly logical or was it mostly moral, uh, which is to say, were you, were you troubled most by the, the, the sudden exposure of inconsistency, or were you troubled by the fact that you felt that your, the behavior of your church was causing unnecessary suffering for others, or, or was it was it just equal parts? And it started out definitely more logical, um, but then also, so uh, the Jewish guy, mm-hmm. um, that first point, that was I think that was really important because then when things came up later, for the first time in my life, I was really willing to say, I think I'm right about this, and the elders are wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, which of course my family would now see as uh, an un, un, uh, inexcusable arrogance for me to say something like that. Um, but nevertheless, um, so a lot of things in within the church started to change too that revealed a lot more inconsistency. So it started out being logical. And then when it became so clear, I mean, in my mind that we were doing things and believing things that were unscriptural. Then everything sort of, like I was saying, it, it, my faith was shaken to its foundations because it's like, well, wait a second then. Like, why why the Bible? Why not the Quran? Why not? And then, of course, I eventually get to the place where I was reading in your um, letter to a Christian nation. You, you finally, I've been you know struggling with how to phrase this, but you said it perfectly about how... Um, we as believers were using our own moral impulses to authenticate the moral truth of the Bible Mm. and yet saying that other people could not rely on their own moral impulses. And, you know, for me, there's this verse in Jeremiah that, you know, I remember my mom, you know, reading it to us when I was really little and just, it was so, so important for us to understand this. She quoted this verse that said, um, for the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked and who can know it. And this was uh, an injunction for us. Like you're, um, you can't rely on your own thoughts. You have to accept this interpretation of the Bible and everything else is wrong. Um, so, to, you know, realizing that it was still us, like to even say the Bible says this, that's still us. It's still our thoughts. It's still our interpretation. It's still our, our um, and how can we rely it's a paradox, right? So, mm. how can we be relying on our on our hearts when our hearts are evil, right? right. So, right. anyways, it was very confusing and and horrible and uh, and an awful awful time. Um, those months before we left, they were even harder, I think, than than the months after we left. Yeah, are you still in touch with your mom or anyone else in your family, or has that been broken off entirely? No, it's it's broken off entirely, but not not on our side like we we don't want that and you know we still 
you know, want to and try to reach out to them. Um, but to them, we are not only the most evil of the most evil because we knew the truth and then denied it and walked away. Um, and, you know, in their eyes, we have crucified to ourselves the son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. That's the, the verse that talks about us. Um, but so in addition to being the most evil of the most evil, we are the most dangerous to them um, because we, you know, they have some kind of, um, you know, love and care for us. And so they and they can't. Jesus said, who is my mother and who are my brethren? It's these that do the will of God. So to them, we're not even their family anymore. So I guess I formed too rosy a picture of your exit because you, you told me that your mother was helping you pack your bags. And so I was picturing it being less acrimonious than that. So what was, was there stark and painful conflict uh, at the exit or was it, or were they just resigned to you leaving and now want nothing more to do with you? I think they were resigned. I mean, like several people came and, you know, the day that we left and tried to, to talk us out of it. I was, I was very entrenched, I guess you could say in, in the church. Um, I, I loved it there for so long. I, I was so happy. I really believed that we were doing what God required of us. And there's such a sense of, I don't know, identity and belonging and truth and meaning and purpose and safety and reward, all these things. And, and I felt valued and treasured and, and loved and cared for, not just by God, but by the members in the church. And because I was so zealous, you know, it was even, even I was this sort of, I felt like this, you know, cherished daughter and of, mm -hmm. and so for, for me, and because I was so outspoken for the church, I mean, like a year before I left, there was this big article in the Kansas City Star kind of contrasting me and a cousin of mine who was about my age who left a few years before then. And, you know, and I was, it, the article ends with me saying, I'm all in. And I was, but uh, anyway, so much changed. But anyway, so it, it was this horrible, wrenching, gut-wrenching, heart-wrenching thing to leave um, and to be faced with all these people that I loved so much and I still love so much. Um, and to know that, you know, they couldn't say anything that that would that would satisfy me, that would mm. be able to make me stay. And there was nothing that I could say it seemed, at least not at that point, um, to convince them that there was another way, you know. Yeah, it's it's really tragic and 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 fascinating. If you're sitting in my seat, I, I'm obviously very sorry you went through it, but you clearly have been equipped as a result of this experience with tools that very few people have. I really think you will help a lot of people if you keep speaking and and reasoning in public because. You just you have a, a unique experience, and you're extremely well spoken, and you're just a, a very cool woman who um, uh, I think can do a lot of good. So it's you know there there is a silver lining to this, but I have no doubt it was really painful to go through, and and surely still is. Definitely, and yeah, I mean then that that um that thing that you just said about about helping people, ironically, I mean ironically to some people, of course, it makes perfect sense to me, but um that that desire, I have no doubt, comes in major part from my upbringing. I mean, we were really trying to do good and to be good, you know, and 
and I still I still really want to do that and so that's that's why I've been you know doing these talks sometimes with um I don't know sometimes interfaith groups and I don't know at universities and and it's and and a, a lot of other places but I actually ended up this is really funny uh that guy from Twitter um he was running this uh Jewish cultural festival in uh Long Beach and I had picketed it in 2009 and you know just three or four months or so after my sister and I left we ended up at that festival speaking about it for the mm. first time oh great um so that was that was really uh I mean, and I'm, I was staying in the home of the rabbi like three years before my sister had held a sign that said, your rabbi is a whore. And now we're staying at, you know, him, this Hasidic <laughs> rabbi and his wife and their four kids. And, nice. you know, they're just welcoming us with, with open arms and just incredibly kind and helpful. And uh, I mean, and willing to talk about, you know, theology and all these just we've met so many wonderful people like that. And uh, it's been it's been an amazing uh, an amazing journey, I guess. Nice, nice. I'm really thankful. Yeah. Well, I, I'm I'm thankful you uh, got out, and I'm very grateful you took the time to speak with me. Um, but where can people find out more about you? What's what's your Twitter handle, and and any other information you want out there? Um, my Twitter handle is Megan Phelps, M E G A N P H E L P S. And I, my sister and I have a blog that we almost never post. It's called Gypsies and Sinners. Uh, and it's on WordPress, mm-hmm. gypsiesandcenters.wordpress.com. Great. Well, people, uh, I encourage people to follow you because um, you're very interesting and um, seemingly um, grounded in ways that very few people are. I uh, have only met you uh, for uh, 90 minutes, but I admire you and uh, I really I wish you the best of luck, Megan. Thanks so much, Sam. <laughs> 